I mean, that kind of imagination of the Caribbean, we have to destroy. Right. Because that's what keeps young people oppressed. Young people from the Caribbean going on, the, going on to the internet would get the sense that nothing would ever get better in their nations. This episode, Sankofa Things, is our episode zero, or foundation. Because we needed to get crystal clear before listening to our organizations why in the world their work is needed in the first place. Which, we always want to feel about this. Really. Welcome to the Under the Sycamore Tree podcast, produced by Rebel Women Lit and Queerly Stated. And I am your host, Carla Moore of Mortat.ge. We are delighted to bring you the stories of two dozen feminist and Caribbean organizers from eight nations of the English-speaking Caribbean, who are supported by Australia Lesbian Foundation for Justice and the Equality Fund to undertake feminist and queer social justice work in our region. We are a team of Jamaican and Jamaican-American women Ranging from our mid-twenties to one of the newest members of the 40s club, we're young professionals, scholars, entrepreneurs, and of course, activists. We're also a literary community. Storytelling is what brought us together and what brings us to you. We will tell this network of stories in a somewhat circular but holistic way. Our podcast is also a call to action. We are using their stories to name the need for local, diasporic, and international support that centers, facilitates, and sustainably funds this movement, of which the WVL grantees, Rebel Women Lit, Queerly Stated, and I are a part. Be still. Or at least slow down. Breathe mindfully and take note of your somatic alchemy. As you join us on this veranda for this podcast, yes, our podcast will take the form of a virtual audio veranda chat. In Jamaica, we love to invite our people into our yards to chat bad, drink nice, and just relax with one another. We hear this is a region-wide practice, so we invite you into our yard also as a safe space. So many of our organizations either run safe spaces, previously did, or wish to do so. Safe space is at a premium for the grantee organizations and those whom they serve. We hope that holding space with this podcast will activate your understanding of its preciousness. So, come in on the yard with we, get a snack, make a drink, and let's begin. In African diasporic literature, there is this trope, typically presented as a mythological character, of the truth-teller. The truth-teller is overlooked, often a leper, or a stillborn, or aborted child, or a child of unknown origin. In Trinidad, they are called Dwen. The Dwen have access to submerged truths, key to the mental, physical, and spiritual well-being of the entire society but are overlooked by humans and used as chattel by those in power. They are not portrayed as children because they are childlike necessarily. Rather, it is because their bodies reflect the form that our societies forget can contain profound truths. The Dwen do not wait to be acknowledged, and they know that the fact that they are not acknowledged does not make the truth any less true. 
Let's say literature is a technology, one created to hold the most layered truths of our histories. And let's just say that our work, Caribbean feminist and queer justice work, contains such truths. And we carry them to you now. You must know how the Caribbean has been present at the beginning of things, very important things, including, and so much more than climate change. Our region could as well be present at what could possibly be the end of these very same things. We will put narrative to work to guide us through these beginnings and possible endings. Stories that help us understand that beginnings and endings are multiple and potential, not foreclosures. And within each are lessons and portals, if you care to seek them out. Let's start with the land itself. There's 1492, a landing on Guanahani, the indigenous name for what is now called Cat Island, or what Columbus audaciously called San Salvador in the Bahamas. His first landing begins what we now call colonization. Was gold on your mind? Gold, the light in your eyes. Gold, the crown of the Queen of Spain. Gold, the prize of your life. The crowning glory. The gateway to heaven. The golden altar. Though I couldn't help noticing, this filled me with dread. Silver was your armor. Silver, the cross of your Lord. Silver, the steel in your countenance. Silver, the glint of your sword. Silver, the bullet I bite. Barbados, way out in the Eastern Caribbean, was the world's first sugar colony and the second official crown colony of the United Kingdom. The establishment of the colony of Barbados can be understood as one of the beginnings of imperialism. Or hear how Cardella Forbes, Jamaican writer and Howard University professor, retells it. Sugar in the boiling houses made the slaves drunk. The shining crystals scooped into vast kegs for shipping to England, the mother country. The grains clung to their skins and got into their eyes and ears and even their secret parts. And that was the reason some could not have children. After the long, cruel hours in the cane piece, being bitten by cane rat, sugar snake, overseer whip, hot sun, and cane leaf, when they went back to their slave cabins at night, there was sometimes nothing to eat but sugar. But they could not eat it without becoming sick, or rather more sick. You will see this in the annals of the sugar plantations, how it was that the bright brown crystals came out, tips of fingers, sometimes knuckles, and even whole arms bitten off by the great machines. The crystals at first wind dark in blood, then soak away to brown when the crushers smooth them out, and still long lines of sick and ailing, many young and old, suffering from the surfeit or indigestion of sugar. 
the extent and variety of ailments from saccharine indigestion were both miraculous and unsurprising. Thus began a tale of colonial promiscuity, of which one of its possible endings is climate change, or region. Like most of the world's island nations and coastal places, are among the hardest hit by forces unleashed by the piracy of capitalist-based consumption. This means that our leaders have been some of the earliest, sounding the alarm eloquently and ferociously on the world stage. Secretary General to the United Nations, President of the General Assembly, distinguished heads of delegations, excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. President, I come to you straight from the front line of the war on climate change. With physical and emotional difficulty, I have left my bleeding nation to be with you here today. Mr. President, warmer air and sea temperatures have permanently altered the climate between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn. Heat is the fuel that takes ordinary storms, storms we could normally master a master in our sleep, and supercharges them into a devastating force. In the past, we would prepare for one heavy storm a year. Now, thousands of storms form on a breeze in the mid-Atlantic and line up to pound us with maximum force and fury. Before this century, no other generation had seen more than one Category 5 hurricane in their lifetime. In this century, this has happened twice, and notably, it has happened in the space of just two weeks. And may I add, Mr. President, that we are only midway into this year's hurricane season. Mr. President, to deny climate change, it is to mock thousands of my compatriots who in a few hours, without a roof over their heads, will watch the night descend on Dominica in fear of sudden mudslides and what the next hurricane may bring. We as a country and as a region did not start this war against nature. We did not provoke it. The war has come to us. Mr. President, my fellow leaders, there is no more time for conversation. There is little time left for action. We in the Caribbean do not produce greenhouse gases or sulfate aerosols. We do not pollute or overfish our oceans. We have made no contribution to global warming that can move the needle. But yet, we are among the main victims on the front line. Our livelihoods are part of our ecosystem. This is how my people and my country earn and survive. But what is our reality at this moment? Mr. President, we dug graves today in Dominica. We buried loved ones yesterday. 
Dominicans, Mr. President, have been responsible members of the global community. We have co-joined all of the major international battles from the abolition of forced labor to the protection of patents. Yet today, 72,000 Dominicans lie on the front line in a war they did not choose with extensive casualties from a war that they did not start. Substantially more funds must therefore be made available to vulnerable countries for loss and damage. Not to do so, Mr. President, would be to abandon those who have paid a steep price for what others elsewhere have created. It will be to let 72,000 Dominicans shoulder the world's conscience on climate change on their own. Today, we ask you not to express your sympathies this week, but then hope our, our eyes do not meet next week. Let it spark a thousand points of light. What does climate change have to do with feminist and queer organizing in our region? Well, first, climate change is a feminist issue. It's a queer issue. Second, in order to hear our full stories, you must know the context in which Caribbean feminists and Caribbean organizers work. Let's move next to the people. Another beginning and possible ending. The Caribbean is also crucial to the invention of blackness. In, in Barbados, um, the, the seminal um, slavery laws of the British Empire um, were the 1661 Barbados Slave Code, which was subsequently taken to Jamaica and then from Jamaica to the Carolinas and across the, 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 um, the 13 colonies. So Barbados was a, a center of, of British power, um, economic power, political power, military power, um, cultural power. The historians tell you that around the turn of the 18th century, Barbados, little Barbados, was more important in trade to Britain than New England, um, Carolina, New York, and Pennsylvania combined. I mean, it, it sounds um, crazy in the 21st century, but back then, sugar was like, like a, a narcotic drug. And um, so Barbados developed this system of um, this, uh, the, the production of superabundant profits on the basis of the super exploitation. France's Code Noir was created to regulate black life in Haiti, Martinique, Guadeloupe, St. Lucia, and Grenada, among other places. This tale, which can also be called How Blackness Was Invented, has a few possible endings. One of them is revolution. Note our hemisphere's history. Two of the most famous revolutions the world over happened here. One of the earliest and the world's only successful slave rebellion, the Haitian Revolution, and one of the latest, the Cuban. Another possible ending is liberation. See Barbados becoming our region's latest republic birthed through black women, with a black woman prime minister in Mia Motley, a black woman president, Her Excellency Sandra Mason, and their newest national hero, the right excellent Robin Rihanna Fenty. 
Now, let's turn to governments, aka Babylon. The story of our region includes one of the beginnings of fascism, which Martinican poet, politician, and co-founder of Negritude, Aim Cesare, famously called our attention to in his 1955 Discourse on Colonialism. Cesare reorients our understanding of fascism in the 21st century. He reminds us that European colonizers, all of them, needed a testing ground for their fascist politics, and their colonies were their labs. Cesare's thought brings us to another beginning, this time one of the origins of post-colonial studies. What fundamentally is colonization? To agree on what it is not, neither evangelization nor philanthropic enterprise, nor a desire to push back the frontiers of ignorance, disease, and tyranny, nor a project undertaken for the greater glory of God, nor an attempt to extend the rule of law. To admit once and for all appetite and force, at which at a certain point in its history, finds itself obliged for internal reasons to extend to a world scale the competition of its antagonistic economies. So we find ourselves back at this beginning. Colonialism and imperialism and the economic models spawned from them. Back at this beginning, there's a portal that leads not to an ending, but tumbling headlong into the potentially false notion of independent nation states. Maurice Bishop, speaking to us from the past, also really powerfully illustrates this. Though many of us will likely be incredibly familiar with this speech, it's worth injecting an extended version of his specific word. Our people, therefore, sisters and brothers, have a greater and deeper understanding of what the revolution means and what it has brought to them. They certainly understand very, very clearly that when some people attack us on the ground of human rights, when some people attack us on the ground of constituting a threat to the national security of other countries, our people understand that is foolishness. They know the real reason has to do with the fact of the revolution and the benefits that the revolution are bringing to the people of our country. The real reason for all of this hostility is because some perceive that what is happening in Grenada can lead to a new socio-economic and political path of development. They give all kinds of reasons and excuses, some of them credible, some utter rubbish. There's an interesting one that we saw very recently in a secret report of the State Department. I want to tell you about that one, so you can reflect on that one. That secret report made this point, that Grenada is different to Cuba and Nicaragua, and the Grenada Revolution is in one sense even worse, I'm using their language, than the Cuban and Nicaraguan revolutions, because the people of Grenada and the leadership of Grenada speaks English and therefore can communicate directly 
to the people of the United States. I can see from your applause, sisters and brothers, that you agree with the report. But I want to tell you what that same report also said, and said that also made us very dangerous. And that is that the people of Grenada and the leadership of Grenada are predominantly black. They said that 95% of our population is black, and they had a correct statistic. And if we have 95% of predominantly African origin of our country, then we can have a dangerous appeal to 30 million black people in the United States. The independent black post-colonial republic what makes a nation independent? Control of their laws? Economic and geopolitical agency? Do you feel our nations have this? Let's take our laws, for example. The legislative foundation for our independent nations is savings clauses, transferring colonial laws intact to form our legal, legislative, and institutional independence. What they left largely unreformed were the police and even many aspects of the judiciary. This, in addition to the large parts of our economies left intact from slave times. How do feminist and queer organizing happen when even your governments do not have independence and full agency? But if you hop back into this portal, it can empty you out at one of two places. First, you'll stop at the justice that is available to us. Let's return to David Komisham, Bayesian ambassador to CARICOM. I would say um, 55 years overdue. It really should have happened on the 30th of November 1966, when Barbados became an independent country but back then, um, for whatever reasons, and the, you know, there are many reasons we can speculate about, we made um, two um, compromises on our constitutional sovereignty and independence. We corrected one compromise in 2005 when we broke our legal system away from the British Privy Council and installed our Caribbean Court of Justice as our highest national court. And so we, we dealt with the second compromise um, on Monday when we moved away, not just from the Queen, but also from the concept, from any concept of hereditary rule, installed our own native um, president, but also a president who is put in place by a democratic process. Where the CCJ and other local courts have made strides on justice and equality, the Crown Court has just as often insisted that Caribbean citizens do not deserve the same rights as British citizens, or citizens of any democracy for that matter. Consider the 2018 case of Day versus the government of the Cayman Islands. We'll hear how Cayman's highest court decided this case, and then you'll hear the final judgment on the case as decided from Britain by the UK Privy Court, which just so happens to be the highest judicial authority for most of the English-speaking Caribbean. 
A recent ruling by the Privy Council in relation to same-sex marriages in the Cayman Islands has dealt a blow to lobby groups across the region that want to have the Bogril law struck down. This is an appeal from the Cayman Islands. The point in issue is whether the constitution of the Cayman Islands confers a constitutional right to legal recognition of same-sex marriages which cannot be abrogated by the legislature. A judge in Cayman initially ruled in the couple's favour in March 2019, but it was later struck down on appeal by Cayman's government. The matter was then brought to the Privy Council, where the council sided with the government. This depends upon the interpretation of the provisions of the Bill of Rights set out in the Constitution. The appellants are two women who are in a committed relationship and wish to enter into a same-sex marriage recognised in law. In 2018, they were refused a licence to marry on the grounds that the marriage law in the Cayman Islands defines marriage as the union between a man and a woman as husband and wife. In explaining its decision, the Privy Council said Cayman's Bill of Rights states that a marriage is illegal when it's between two people of opposite sexes. The Privy Council says to interpret that section of the Bill of Rights in any other way would undermine the coherence of the entire bill. Rather than a right of marriage, the European Court has held that the right to respect for family and private life creates a right for same-sex couples to seek other forms of legal recognition for their relationships. The Cayman Islands government accepts that the equivalent provision in the Bill of Rights has the same effect. Accordingly, a form of civil partnership recognised in law is available for same-sex couples in the Cayman Islands and there is constitutional protection for this. The Privy Council points out that its ruling doesn't prevent Cayman's lawmakers from bringing legislation to recognise the same-sex marriages. This Crane Court ruling comes five years after a CCJ ruling overturning Victorian-era vagrancy and cross-dressing laws that were used to criminalise trans and queer persons. This precedent was set by members of Guyana Trans United, who were the lead plaintiffs on the case. You'll learn more about this case in the episode Setting Precedent, Positive Rights. And here's another portal, funding. What we want to know truly is, does funding facilitate or arrest our work? Truly, hell, like not just our work, what about us? Our visions, those conversations, the actually like generative and kind of lush, you know, those conversations. How precisely does it differ from a colonial state of affairs if the only way it differs is that it allows us to feel like we have more control over our future? A feeling not manifested in our collective realities. What are we to do? What of entrepreneurship and collectivities? Where do these belong in our work? The vast majority of funding for social justice work, queer liberation, and feminist organizing comes from abroad, namely the United States, Canada, and the European Union collectively and individually. Then there are the international multilateral organizations housed in and directed by these same countries, and to a lesser extent, China and Japan. Note the irony. 
that the countries responsible for the frameworks of our oppression, if not its ongoing daily implementation, are the ones who set our justice agendas. Our world, my friends, stands at a fork in the road. One no less significant than when the United Nations was formed in 1945. But then, the majority of our countries here did not exist. We exist now. The difference is we want to exist a hundred years from now. The leaders of today, not 2030, not 2050, must make this choice. It is in our hands. And our people and our planet need it more than ever. And that was Mia Motley addressing the COP26 opening ceremony in November 2021. Y'all, Mia cannot save the world. Finally, I will not be your only guide. Let's say I'll be your Earthside guide. We will turn to Colin Robinson, a giant of Caribbean organizing who is now in the ancestral realm. Because it's time to take note of who is often missing. Our indigenous communities and our disabled communities. Colin's words from one of his last interviews before his transition will have to hold us and keep us for now. We uh, had a program that of about seven gay um, deaf people came to because one of our peer leaders signed. And so they, you know, otherwise they wouldn't have been able to understand what was going on. And we asked them, what's the thing that you could do that would have the biggest impact on homophobia and deaf communities? And you know what they said, right? No clue. When straight, when I'm hearing people, sorry, learn to sign. Right. Because, you know, you can't be talking to your doctor about how you get the STI or asking him difficult questions. Um, him or her dif difficult questions, if it's the church interpreter you're relying on. You can't go to an LGBTI social event if nobody could talk to you. We will be visiting with indigenous women's groups. There will be further portals we will need to traverse to experience Caribbean indigeneity. But not so many as you might think. As one of our participants reminded us, the indigenous Caribbean is not an alternate universe. Indigenous folks have been living in the same Caribbean as you and I, but as you travel the portals that link us with the indigenous peoples and inheritance of our region, you will come to rethink our relationship to land and entitlement. But, just but, what if we could fly from this free fall? You know what? Say we are flying. We've flown so high that it might be nice to look down now. Following Kai's instructions, first, you must imagine the sky, blue and cloudless, if that helps, or else the luminously black spread of night. Next, and this is the important bit, you must imagine yourself inside it, inside the sky, floating beside me. Now focus. Supported like this, just so, we can make out our sea, the Caribbean Sea. And if we look clearly and in just the right light, we can make out 
our map, the map of Caribbean and feminist organizing in the English-speaking Caribbean. Look to the northwest corner of the lands ringing the sea. Find Belize, planted on the Yucatan Peninsula's eastern end like the cool, cool side of a brick wall at midday. Belize, which marks the northernmost boundary of our podcast, is where the women of power dedicate themselves to women's and family empowerment and reproductive health. So too do Petal and Our Circle, who advocate for lesbian, bisexual, and queer, which we'll refer to as LBQ, women across the nation. You'll also find Toledo Maya Women's Council, an indigenous group working towards girls' and women's empowerment in the Toledo district in southern Belize. Now... Glide due east from Belize and pass over the Cayman Islands to Jamaica. Jamaica is home base to one of the region's oldest queer advocacy groups, Cariflags, as well as one of our region's newest and boldest LBQ groups, We Change. Jamaica is also home to E for Life, an organization dedicated to lifting up and guiding teen mothers, as well as pushing forward youth, sexual and reproductive health education. Next, soar over to the northeast edge of our sea. Cruise east, past Haiti and the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico and all of the Virgin Islands, and then slightly southeast, past St. Kitts and Nevis to Antigua and Barbuda. Here, the Caribbean Institute of Women in Leadership, or CIWIL, monitors, strengthens, and increases women's political participation and leadership across our region. Integrated Health Outreach works at the intersection of sustainability and gender empowerment to build a holistic approach to boosting women and girls' mental health. Intersect, which rounds out our Antigua and Barbuda contingent, uses digital slash cyber feminist activism as a means of subverting unequal power relations, engaging Antiguans and Barbudans and people across the Caribbean region on a range of gender-related topics, including through their digital literary journal. Now, come back slightly east following the trail of the Lesser Antilles south to St. Lucia. Here, Helen's Daughters empowers women farmers. Girls of a Feather supports girls leaving the juvenile correction system. And Raise Your Voice St. Lucia centers women and children in their support of those who experience gender-based violence. Hop and skip further down the island chain to Grenada where we'll stop to hear from Sweetwater Foundation. From this, their base in the southwestern corner of our regional ring, they are undertaking a region-wide survey of childhood sexual assault. Trace your sight south past Trinidad and Tobago, and then east to the center of South America's northernmost coast. 
we'll hear from trailblazers all around, starting with two more of our region's earliest queer advocacy groups, Guyana Rainbow Foundation, also known as Gaibo, and Guyana Trans United, the organization who pursued the court case leading to a regional repeal of Bogri laws through the Caribbean Court of Justice. Hmm, stick up in here. You may be wondering how far-reaching this regional precedent is. Well, back to the independence available to our nations. There are nations for whom their highest judicial authority remains the Crown Court. For these nations, Bogri laws are still on the books. Then we'll leave Guyana's coast and move into the Amazon River Basin to hear from indigenous-led groups, the Makushi Research Unit and Wapichan Women's Movement. And finally, here we are at the southeastern edge of the Caribbean, floating above Suriname. This is where SUCOS, or Suriname Coalition of Sex Workers, and the LBQ Women's and Family Advocacy Group Women's Way put in work. If you take a deep, deep breath now, hold it, and then exhale it out, we expect you'll land steady on sturdy footing back in center wherever in the Caribbean or elsewhere that is for you. Let me take us back to Colin, speaking near the end of his most recent life to seal this episode. And there's this persistent narrative that we tend to paint and we love to embrace that we're backward. <laughs> you know, that we homophobic, it's a culture, it's a culture. Mm-mm. And we need to break that sense of ourselves. We need to break that sense of um, our governments. We need to break that sense, because it's a stereotype and it's a racist stereotype. I've seen it operate as a racist stereotype internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, how the Caribbean is this deep, dark place of homophobia where, I mean, that kind of imagination of the Caribbean, we have to destroy. Because that's what keeps young people oppressed. Because when young people are struggling, you know, in their families and their homes with the sense of, you know, being trans or these sexual attractions, you know, happening, these things happening in their bodies. But not that long ago, there weren't. And they would turn to the internet. And on the internet, they would find these crushing representations of the places that they live. We have 10 more episodes for you, each dedicated to themes related to the work of Caribbean feminist and queer organizing, eldership, justice and judicial precedents, indigeneity, youth, families, communities, feminist leadership, making money and self-possessed selfhood. Each of our organizers gifted something for the veranda, a thought, an item or a wish, which we'll plant under the sycamore tree to guide our continued work and unite the generations to come. Also, to honor our elders and forebears who deserve to retire and rest well. We would like to thank Jackie's mom, Monica Fodderingham, 
for reading copiously to Jackie and her sisters when they were little and for reading to us now. Big up nice clean Miss Monica. Yeah, nice clean you. You heard in order passages from Olive Senior's poems, Discovery, Cardella Forbes, A Tall History of Sugar, Kai Miller's Augustone, and Aim Césaire's Discourse on Colonialism. This episode was produced by Rebel Women Lit and Queerly Stated, with support from Australia Lesbian Foundation for Justice, Equality Fund, and Global Affairs Canada. Research and writing by Jackie Brown, script editing and project management by Dave Ann Moses, editing and sound by Jerrine Patmore and Sophia Chenier, and outreach by Ashley Daly. Remember to head on over to the show notes to find the details of the organizers featured in our episode and rebelwomenlit.com for additional references. Thank you so much for joining me, your host, Carla Moore, under the sycamore tree.